Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Pediapod for July 2018. This month we meet an early career investigator, Dr. Maggie Stanislawski. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD, is the most common cause of chronic liver disease in the United States. It's also been steadily rising, along with obesity levels. Currently, early interventions for NAFLD include dietary, lifestyle counselling and vitamin supplementation. Maggie Stanislawski from the University of Colorado is working to expand the options for early intervention into this condition by delving into the role of the microbiome. Here's Maggie. So I studied mathematics in undergraduate, so I went to Pomona College, and afterwards I did the Peace Corps, which is a volunteer program overseas, and I was a high school math teacher there. When I came back to the States, I was interested in doing research, and I got a master's in statistics, and I worked as a statistician in various jobs, and eventually ended up doing cardiology outcome research. During that time, I realized I wanted to get a PhD, and I started talking to people at the University of Colorado about areas of research here on campus, and I learned more and more about the microbiome, and I realized that this was the field for me. So I decided to join the Department of Epidemiology, and that's where I got my PhD. And you're still there now, and you've, you've brought that enthusiasm for the gut microbiome into a recent paper looking at non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. First of all, tell us what that is. So um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which people often refer to as NAFLD, is kind of an umbrella term and it encompasses a lot of different conditions going from just mild accumulation of fat in the liver to NASH, which is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, hepatitis. And that involves fibrosis of the liver. It often leads to liver cancer and it's actually the um, either number one or number two cause of liver transplants. And then the most advanced stage of NAFLD would be cirrhosis. And so the early stages of NAFLD are reversible, but then as it progresses, it's no longer reversible. Give us a sense of the burden of this disease. Like how widespread is it in the U.S., for example? Um, in the U.S., it's, the prevalence is about 10 to 40%. It's a little bit hard to estimate because of the diagnostic techniques. In children, it's about 3 to 10%, but the rates are much, much higher in obese populations. Are there treatments for NAFLD? Is this an easy disease to get rid of? Unfortunately, there 
are no great treatments at this point. I think there are some drugs that are might soon be coming on the market, but as far as I know, they're not there yet. And so right now, a lot of the treatment would just be counseling or trying to change the diet. But the other problem with this is that the diagnostic methods are not very good. And so the gold standard for diagnosis is actually a liver biopsy. And this is an asymptomatic disease. And so a lot of kids, when they're first diagnosed, they actually have NASH. So they have the more progressive form of this disease. And so, you know, at that point, it's much harder to reverse. And so having earlier diagnostic methods would be really, really helpful. And then also having better treatment options would be great, especially for a young population. From a naive point of view, NAFLD seems like quite a strange area for someone interested in the gut microbiome to, to end up. There's actually quite a bit of evidence for the association between the gut microbiome and NAFLD. And a lot of it comes from animal models and bench science, and there's a whole realm of research that examines the pathways that would connect these two things. So the gut microbiota does lots of different things, and it affects things like the metabolism of lipids and cholesterol, triglyceride storage. It affects inflammation, and specifically hepatic inflammation. Um, And it also plays a role in the regulation of lipogenesis and gluconeogenesis, And then there's also the effects on diet. So we know that diet plays a role in NAFLD, and it might have direct effects on the liver, but it might also have gut-mediated effects. So let's hear about the paper then. You wanted to investigate this association between the gut microbiota, the diet, as you say, and, and the hepatic fat fraction. So the hepatic fat fraction is how much fat is in the liver. So it's basically a proportion. Usually the cutoff that people use to define NAFLD is 5%. So if your liver has about 5% fat, you probably have mild NAFLD. And it can range, you know, a normal healthy person would have basically 0% hepatic fat, um, but it can go up from there. So in pediatric populations, I think in our cohort, it went up to about 20%. But um, in adult populations or like more advanced stages of NAFLD, they can have really, really high proportions. And presumably the diet was the easier part to measure with a questionnaire. Yes, we used food frequency questionnaires that were designed for kids. Finally, how did you measure the the microbiome and and what specifically were you looking for? So we used um, a method that involved a swab. So the kids are given a little sterile swab and they basically just swipe it across their toilet paper. It's very easy to do. And then they bring those back and we freeze them and then we process them to find out the taxonomic composition of the gut. Let's hear about the results then. Were there specific types of microorganisms, first of all, that explained some of the change in hepatic fat fraction? Yes, there were. So we found numerous microorganisms that were associated with hepatic fat fraction and most of them were biologically plausible. So there's been prior research showing either the function of the microbes that we found or just the general associations that would make sense. So for example, one of the microorganisms that we found is called Oscillospira. And this was higher among people with low hepatic fats. And that is an organism that generally is associated with better health um, in a lot of different prior studies. Another organism that that we found was called bilophila, and just like the name denotes, it likes bile. And this was higher among people with higher hepatic fat, which biologically makes sense. Like we don't fully understand the role of bile acids in NAFLD, but they do play a large role, and um, regulation of bile acids plays a large role in NAFLD. So that makes sense as well. Right. And and what about just the general, you know, levels of diversity within the microbiome? 
So with the microbiome, a lot of times we talk about alpha diversity, and so that's essentially a measure of the diversity of the organisms in an individual's gut. And we found that lower alpha diversity was associated with higher hepatic fat fraction. And this is consistent, again, with prior research. A lot of different studies have shown associations between low alpha diversity and lots of different diseases, things that range all the way from obesity to autism to HIV. So it's a fairly consistent result that people in poor health tend to have at least somewhat lower alpha diversity. Um, and I think one of the ideas is that with high alpha diversity, then your, your gut is able, there's a lot of different types of organisms that are able to respond to stressors. And so different things can bloom and, and fill certain niches as they're, as they're necessary. You also performed those dietary questionnaires. Were there any strong signals coming from that part of the experiment? So we were a little bit surprised that there wasn't a stronger association with diet. So the way that we did it is that we looked at clinical risk factors and saw how strongly they associated with hepatic fat. And then we looked at just dietary information and looked how strongly that associated with hepatic fat. And then the gut microbiota taxa. Um, and then we combined all those factors together. And we were somewhat surprised that just using diet alone was not predictive of hepatic fat really at all. But then when we use all those different characteristics combined, then one thing that did come out was monounsaturated fatty acids. So this is the type of fat that's in, for example, olive oil. Um, and that was highlighted as predictive of lower hepatic fat. So there wasn't a strong association with diet, but that one characteristic did come out in our final kind of most predictive model. What are the implications of this then? Are these results useful in terms of finding perhaps ways to prevent or even, you know, offset early NAFLD in pediatric populations? I think that there's two kind of main hopes for this realm of research of the microbiome. And one is that it will inform treatments. And so there's various ways that this can happen. So you can have like very targeted dietary advice. So rather than just go eat healthy, we might be able to say, you know, this specific type of food, you know, is going to have beneficial effects and, and our understanding of which types of food would be informed by our knowledge of the gut microbiome. And there's two types of food that we know kind of affect the gut microbiome composition a lot. Those are probiotics and prebiotics. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with probiotics. So those are living organisms in the food um, or in pills. You can buy them in the grocery store. And they have good bugs that then affect the composition of your gut. So fermented foods like yogurt or um, kombucha would have probiotics in them. Prebiotics are also in food or in pill form. And they contain a type of fiber that you yourself cannot digest, but your gut microbes can. And so they're, they go through the small intestine without being digested. But then in the colon, the gut microbes digest them. So essentially, by eating a lot of prebiotics, you would be shaping the types of bugs that can thrive in the gut. And so um, prebiotics is another realm where potentially we would be able to treat or intervene on people with conditions like NAFLD or obesity or, you know, different related conditions. Um, the other avenue is with kind of biomarkers or a diagnostic techniques. So, you know, this study showed that we can use the gut microbiome to improve our prediction of people who have high hepatic fat or to help identify them, so basically for risk profiling. Um, and another study that came out recently actually used very similar techniques, and they were able to differentiate between mild NAFLD, like the early stages, and NASH just based on gut microbiota, and they had very high accuracy. Um, and so these types of applications 
would have clinical use. If we can really build good predictive models, then you can imagine a time when we would go in for a clinic checkup, and normally now that would involve a blood draw, and then you can use your blood to try and figure out if you're at high risk for, you know, maybe heart disease, if your cholesterol is really high. Um, there might be a time when we do the same thing and you just give your doctor a fecal sample. Um, despite the X factor, it's actually much less invasive than a blood draw. Um, and then that information could be used to profile your risk for things like NAFLD or other diseases as well. That was Maggie Stanislawski from the University of Colorado. And that's it for this episode. Join us again next month for the next edition of Pediapod. I'm Jeff Marsh. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.